Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Did you ever get the feeling that the net is tightening around you? That what you thought you could do yesterday, you might be told you can't do tomorrow? There is a growing feeling of foreboding in the air this morning as the gloom descends on the capital and the Tower of London disappears in the mist before my very eyes. I can't even see it at all now. When I wrote this about five minutes ago, I could still see the top of it. It's gone completely now. Stern warnings uh, are being uh, emanated from all quarters of the government today. Home Secretary Priti Patel yesterday threatened everyone uh, that she'd set the police on them if they didn't obey the rules. Even as Derbyshire police apologised to the two reservoir coffee drinkers and withdrew their penalty notices. Matt Hancock reckons it's a great idea to offload hospital patients into hotels and care homes to make more space uh, for more empty beds. But hang on a minute, I thought we didn't have enough staff to look after people in hospitals outside of the NHS, generally speaking, because the Nightingale hospitals have been pretty much mothballed. Politicians in Liverpool are alarmed at the sharp increase of cases in the northwest, amid more claims that we haven't even hit the peak of the second wave yet. And meanwhile, no one can do anything. Most people aren't working and businesses can't make any money. Where is it all going to end? We'll be checking in with businessman and former MEP Lance Foreman first up this morning, 0344 499 1000. And after our discovery yesterday of the link being shared to make appointments to get a vaccination and your stories about the anxiety being felt by our homeschooled children, we want to hear more of your stories today. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And what are you being told? You are the eyes and ears of the independent republic and we need to hear from you. Right straight from the horse's mouth. We'll also be talking China. We've got the first Prime Minister's questions of the year. And Neil Oliver joins us as well with his take on the state we are in. I think he's been spending most of the last week trying to avoid the internet. 0344 499 1000. Plus, we'll look at what's happening to Russia out there. And what's next for the chop? Could it be open-air food markets after John Lewis cancelled their click-and-collect service? We'll be finding out from Borough Market what's going on uh, in their neck of the woods. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest great radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So I woke up this morning with a kind of a sense of gloom. I'm not normally a very pessimistic individual. I'm normally pretty optimistic. I'm normally the sort of person that not exactly bounds out of bed straight into the shower, but I'm usually in a pretty good state of mind, ready to take on the world, ready to punch my way through any adversity that comes my way. And I'm all right now, luckily, uh, because I've been in the office and I've been cheered up by many of my colleagues who are also uh, going through the same old cobblers that we all are. But the bottom line for me is that, listen, I'm not really willing to put up with this forever. I'm not really willing to put up with every single manoeuvre that they keep putting on us. I'm not really willing to put up uh, with this for months and months and months on end. And what I want from the government is some form of a statement, some form uh, of an intention that this is a plan that we have. And this is where we plan to go with that plan. And this is when we intend to move away from this plan and start another plan. It doesn't sound that difficult, does it? If you run a business, you need a plan. If you run a radio station, you need a plan. If you run a radio show, you need a plan. But apparently this government doesn't have a plan. Let's talk to Lance Foreman, businessman and former MEP. Lance, a very good morning to you. And a very good morning to you. Thank you very um, much indeed for joining. Sorry for the rants, but I'm feeling a little bit punchy this morning. <laughs> Well, um, a few years ago, I wrote a book and uh, it was about all the trials and tribulations that our business suffered when we were forcibly evicted from our previous to build the Olympic Stadium yes. uh, right on top of us. Mm. And if that wasn't bad enough, we'd only just finished building that factory because the last one where we'd been for 40 years was flooded when the local river overflowed. Right. And if that wasn't bad enough... That flooded factory had only just been refurbished because two years beforehand we had a fire which burnt down three quarters of it. So I'm, I'm quite used to sort of dealing with <laughs> crises. And, uh, um, and, and actually, to be fair to the government, 
sometimes uh, with crisis, you and you have to act on the latest information you have. And in fact, one of the first things I say in my book, I think is one of the first few sentences, is, is quite a famous Yiddish expression, which is man tracht and Gott lacht, means man plans and God laughs. Yes. We don't always know what's around the next corner. No, However, I get I get all that, Lance, and I accept yeah, it as however, well. And I know, and I like yeah. you have been um, through trials and tribulations. I once had an office in New York on Fifth Avenue, one sixty six Fifth Avenue. People in London thought uh, I was above the Trump Tower or next to Tiffany's or something like that, but it was actually downtown by the Flatiron Building. It got robbed three times in the same week. Each time, I put a different sort of security measure in. I put bars on the windows. Uh, I got sort of security locks on the doors. I put motion detectors in. By the third time, I hired an armed guard. And I said to the guy, if this bloke comes back, don't shoot him till I get there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that was how it made me feel. I know. It is, it is frustrating. Some, you know, the, the pandemic is obviously something that we haven't experienced before in living memory. And, you know, you have to act, you know, on latest information, there, there is certain things you can plan for. And the one thing we should be planning for, because we absolutely know we will have to address it at some stage, is how we deal with the economy. Yeah. And what I find really frustrating, you know, you listen to these press conferences at, uh, at and you have mainstream media sort of arguing about whether local means five miles away from your home or seven miles. Meanwhile, we're two trillion pounds indebted. We yeah. are more indebted as a nation than our country has ever been in its history. Nobody's asking questions about that. Well, exactly. Nobody's asking questions about how are we planning to get ourselves out of this so we can repay our debt and get the economy moving again. And that's what I've been saying this week, Lance, because surely... One good thing that's happened uh, is the, the development of vaccines, right? We've now got three vaccines, two up and running, one coming shortly uh, in a few weeks' time. Now, surely if we've got the vaccines, you could form a plan as to how to unlock the economy. Because if you've got people being protected by a vaccine, then surely you can start to move into the next phase. And that's what I want to see. I want to see some kind of roadmap, some kind of plan. And I accept that there might be things that interrupt that, but we don't even have a plan at the moment which is interruptible. Well, maybe there is a plan, but we're not hearing it. And uh, I, I think we, we do need to hear it because I think part of getting an economy going is building people know there is a plan. They can hopefully, you know, as long as they agree with the plan, uh, confidently get behind it. And, and I don't think that plan needs to be terribly complicated either. I think it needs to be the same plan that you have to get an economy moving at any time. But only now we need to do it on steroids. Yeah. Partly because, partly because of this you know, this tragedy of COVID and the actions that we've taken uh, to deal with it, right, you know, whether you agree with them or not. And also because we are actually, you know, this coincides with a whole brave new world of Brexit, which is also, to, you know, a, a complete change in the way we've done things over the last 40 years and gives us an opportunity to, to, to do something really radical. Yes. And, um, you know, the, the, the two opportunities that sort of come out of that are, you know, first of all, um, the, the deregulation. You know, one of one of the there were two main prizes, I suppose, of, of uh, Brexit. One, one was, you know, the opportunity for global trade and that will come in time. And it's not really something government can do too much about. That's really up to business to seize that opportunity as it sees fit. You know, trade deals will help, but they're really the icing on the cake. But something government could do right now is, you know, they could be saying, particularly to small businesses, and small businesses account for over 99% of business in the country, say, look, for the last 40 years, you've been complaining about all the sort of rules and regulations that have been coming out of Brussels. Um, you know, tell us your top 100 rules. We will scrap them. We want to ease up things for you so that, mm. you know, it's been a really you know, tough time over the last year or so. Let's just, you know, make business easier for you so you can get on and drive growth and drive wealth creation and entrepreneurialism. Sure. And, and that's what they could be, you know, they could be doing that right now. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I quote you very regularly, Lance, because you once said to me that, you know, trade is not done between countries as such. It is done between individual businesses. And I was going to ask you, um, in your capacity as a businessman, whether anything has changed for you since the beginning of January, because we've heard, you know, adverts on the radio telling people you have to be prepared for this, you have to get ready for that. Uh, you might have to um, uh, do paperwork differently than you've done before. I mean, it all seems to be going along reasonably well so far. I know it's early days yet, but it doesn't seem to have been a disaster. 
Uh, well, there, there haven't been, you know, I think the Remainers were hoping to see miles and miles of lorries sort of queuing up at mm. Dover, and that's certainly... There have been, you know, uh, you know, reportedly some sort of glitches along the way, and they're bound to be, you know, with any change, you're going to get a little bit of a, a sort of uh, a learning uh, glitch. So I think, um, you know, obviously, if you're exporting to uh, to the EU, you know, you will now need depending on the products, you you may or may not need some sort of certification. And if you haven't done that before, there will be a learning curve for the first time you do it. It'll be a bit tricky. The next time, less, less tricky. And by the time you've done it for the third time, you'll do it with your eyes closed and that will be normal. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not just the, the businesses that might, you know, that have to learn. Bureaucrats that have to, you know, um, you know, that, that, that sign those... Uh, those forms also have to learn how to do them and uh you know but it's not you know none of this is rocket science so mm. uh, but, but i think the, you know the, the opportunities uh are, are great and i think the opportunities to to do something so radical you know i, I i've always believed that uh you know the, the way to get the economy going is to is to is not only deregulate but also you you want a low tax regime you know, if you look at furlough, you could you could almost consider furlough as a tax repayment. Mm. You know, people have basically been paid for sitting at home because the government hasn't wanted them to and to work. And it's almost as though they've sort of said, you know what, over the last 10 years, we taxed you too much. We're handing you this money back. Mm. That's, sort of, you know, you could look at furlough like that. That's fine for individuals. They need to do the same with businesses. I believe that they should scrap corporation tax. It doesn't raise that much. It's a very complicated tax to operate. You know, all these big multinationals don't even pay it. No. You know, well, that's you know, the, the point. I mean, the, what's happened over the past, I would say, sort of 10 years, and I speak as somebody who has a small business, uh, much smaller than yours, sadly. But, you know, the fact is, is that the small business person in this country has been absolutely crucified by continual Tory chancellors, right? Since George Osborne, you know, it's become an absolute red tape nightmare to try and get an accountant to work out what it is that you can do with your corporation tax, what it is that you get taxed on for dividends, what you get taxed on and, and national insurance uh, contributions and all that. I mean, it's an absolute nightmare. And as you say, the big companies don't bother. Don't bother. So if you removed it, actually what you do is you have a level playing field between the smaller ones and the big ones. But I, I think the, the opportunities to, um, you know, for economic growth from scrapping the uh, from scrapping corporation tax will be immense. I actually think that government tax revenues would increase in the medium term and long term as a result of the economic growth. Because you know, if a company doesn't have to pay corporate, it leaves it offers, and with that cash, it might invest, which will mean the company will grow. It might employ means those people will pay more tax, and actually, income tax is a much higher rate. Then corporation tax, so the government will collect tax at a higher rate. The same with dividends. If you know companies pay their directors or shareholders dividends, that's at a higher rate. So the government will actually receive more, and the business mm. has, you know, the economy has an opportunity to grow. Companies all over the world would rush to invest in the UK. You know, why do we think that Ireland has grown as an economy? You know, Ireland grew because they have 12.5% tax at the lowest tax rates in Europe. That's yeah. why every, you know, all these big corporates went to Ireland. If we had zero corporation tax rates, you know, the, the whole world would come to the UK as its sort of destination for investment. And that would be absolutely amazing for, for our economy. We can, you know, now is the moment, you know, we've had COVID, we've had Brexit. It, you know, these are massive, massive changes. And I, I just think that the, uh, the Chancellor needs to move away from this sort of tinkering approach where they adjust the tax up 1% here or 2% down there and whatever. We need something radical. And I think scrapping corporation yeah. tax for me... And, in, and, in, interesting, and, and interestingly enough, Lance, I mean, you know, having seen what's happened over the past 10 or 11 months in terms of what the Chancellor has been able to do, and I think uh, we should note that he has been able to help a lot of people out, even though he hasn't been able to help everybody out. Um, but he's basically set the bar now um, at a point where you can imagine anything is possible. You know, it's going to be very difficult now for the government to turn around and say, oh, we can't do that. You know, in the old days, you know, like when Philip Hammond would say to Theresa May, oh, no, we can't do that. That's obviously going to be ring fenced. We can't touch that money because you've pointed out in the past that the amount of money that they've spent on the furlough system could have provided an awful lot of infrastructure in this country, could have provided an awful lot of jobs in this country if they'd gone about it a slightly different way. And I'm not I'm not petty pinching here. I'm not suggesting that what they did wasn't necessary, but they could have done it a different way.
Yeah, well, well, that's absolutely right. So you have to look at the effectiveness of the measures. You know, the government will have spent something in the region of five hundred billion pounds on uh, COVID by the time it's all over. Maybe more. Um, corporation tax on a good year raises about fifty billion. So that you know, that's not even a tenth. You know, it's a tenth of what they're spending this year. Probably half that because companies won't be making profits. So why not just scrap it completely and just watch the country bloom and blossom and, and see the economic growth that comes out of that, which will then create greater tax revenues through employment, through sort of dividends and so on, and, and massive investment in the UK. It's, you know, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a no brainer and something we should try right now. I, you know, I hope Rishi Sunak is, uh, is listening to your show. Uh, yes, Mike. well, let's hope so. And what about your own situation, Lance? I mean, how's your business going? How are your employees? doing because we keep hearing um, an awful lot of doom and gloom right now um, it is difficult to ignore the size of the numbers in terms of the people that are dying in terms of the spread of the disease um, how is it affecting you guys um, well in terms of health I have to say we've been uh, very fortunate um, so our, our staff have been healthy you know we've d done our best to make sure that people are socially distanced in terms of our actual business, it, it's really been swings and roundabouts. So we have a wholesale business supplying restaurants and hotels and so on. That has completely fallen off a cliff. Mm. You know, that just doesn't exist anymore. And I don't think it's going to come back, you know, this year, maybe possibly late in the year. But I, I really don't think mm. it's going to come back till 2022. On the other side of things, we have a home delivery sort of gourmet food business. Yeah. And that has done phenomenally well. And, um, you know, obviously people are now used to buying their food online. People are sending a lot of food parcels and food gifts. And so, you know, Foreman of Fields, you know, has had, has had a, you know, had, had a very good year. But, you know, as a business person, again, you know, it, you can't just, you know, when a crisis happens, you can't just go and sit in a corner and suck your thumb and sort of cry about yeah. how bad things are. You have to, you know, there are opportunities in good times and there are opportunities in bad times. And you have to be flexible. Yes. And, you know, work out how to deal with the situation that faces you. And you know, that's what we did. We turned all our attention to home delivery rather than our, you know, rather than our sort of supplying, you know, the food service mm. industry, which is, you know, you know, it's been tragic what's happened to that industry. Yeah, but this uh, is but, why... But this is why, Lance, I, I fear for hospitality and I, and I take my hat off to so many of my friends who, who work in it and who run businesses in it because they have been incredibly um, agile. They've been amazingly inventive and they've really been the best of sort of Britain, if you like. Uh, over in Borough Market is a guy called um, Fred Turnips, he calls himself, who runs the vegetable stall there. He turned his uh, vegetable stall every night into a bar, uh, a champagne bar on one side and a Michelin star restaurant on the other side with a tastings menu. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. But he was only able to do it for about two weeks and they shut it all down again. Yeah, I mean, look, people have been really inventive and creative and they've worked, you know, they've worked really hard to do this. And, and, and the government has, you know, I think has treated them really badly. Kicked them in that. the teeth, really, more than once. I mean, repeatedly, I'm afraid. It, you know, it really has. Uh, you know, it was actually in London, I would say, it was that 10pm curfew that uh, Sadiq Khan, uh, I think, uh, brought in. Mm. Or, you know, that was the thing that sort of really killed it. Just, you know, just after the summer as the, the right. train was sort of starting to get back on its feet. Yeah. But, um, and it's, you know... It's all very well the government saying, well, we're, you know, we're looking after your employees and paying them furlough. But the problem is, the, you know, businesses, particularly in hospitality, still have fixed costs. You know, they still have their rent and, and so on, which still has to be paid. And that's not being covered. And the problem is so many of those businesses are just going under. Mm. And if they go under, it means they're not paying their creditors, their suppliers, which means their suppliers are going under. And, and if that's the case, which, which it is, um, it means that once furlough ends, these people are not going to have jobs to go back to. No. So, you know, you have to, in my view, and I've said this right from the very start, right since last March, it's all very well supporting the employees. You have to support the businesses. And uh, the government hasn't been doing that no. at all. And, uh, you know, as I say, we, we have a, a one and a half million extra unemployed now.
70,000 extra people homeless now as a result of the lockdown policy. Mm. You know, I really, you know, I really do have my doubts that this was the best way to approach it. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Lance, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Lance Foreman, businessman, former MEP, uh, talking an awful lot of sense from both the perspective of a politician, but also of a businessman as well. Because the point is, and the point that I will continue to make about this lockdown, is that there needs to be a plan. We need to have some form of exit plan so that we know uh, when enough people are vaccinated, when that uh, figure is hit, the magic figure, whatever it is, whatever the government tells us it is, then suddenly people can look forward to opening their businesses again. We're hearing today, for example, that they're shutting more of them down. Borough Market may end up getting shut down because it's an open-air market. There are people like Sadiq Khan who would like to see that happening, which would kill off even more business, right? They're talking about dem- uh, doing away with click and collect at John Lewis uh, because of the new COVID restrictions. And the bottom line for me uh, is that without any kind of uh, you know view to the end of the tunnel where the light may be, even if there isn't any light at the moment, we could at least find out when the tunnel ends, couldn't we? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, one of the things we like to do, as you know, on a regular basis is to gain information, not just from London, because we can see what's going on in London, where we can normally see what's going on. And today we can't see what's going on because you literally can't see across the road. It's a real pea super, as we used to call it, uh, in terms of the mist and the fog and the rain and the ghastliness. And it's all very depressing. I mean, as if mid-January isn't bad enough. Uh, we're now in the midst of a lockdown, a pandemic. People are dying. It's absolutely dreadful. But here's a question for you. Is everybody driving somewhere? Because it seems to me that the roads are a lot busier than they should be. We've been hearing for a long time that rush hour is kind of a thing of the past. Very few people now use the train to go to work. People who use the train tell me uh, that there's never anybody on it really anymore to speak of. The tube trains are pretty quiet here in London. But what I'd love to know is what the traffic's like where you are. If you're in Manchester, if you're in Leeds, if you're in Lincolnshire, if you're in Sheffield, uh, if you're in Cardiff, Glasgow, Edinburgh, what's it like? Let's talk to Edmund King now, president of the AA, because I'm hopeful uh, that he will probably have some stats for us on how many cars are actually out and about. Edmund, a very good morning to you. Happy New Year. Yes, thanks to you, Mike. Yes, I mean, I know we're probably getting a bit too far into January just to to keep up with those niceties, but I quite like to do it anyway. Um, I've been slightly puzzled this uh, this week in particular because, um, you know, London traffic sort of ebbs and flows and sometimes it's it's more busy than others. But at the moment during the week, it seems to be about the same level, I would say, as it was kind of mid December. Um, which was which was what I would say is not as, as busy as it was, say, for example, in September or something like that. But since the sort of major lockdown of November, it hasn't really gone down that much. And I mean, I'm wondering where all these people are going. Yeah, it is very interesting, Mike. So if we think back almost a year to the end of March last year and when the first lockdown came, mm. immediately traffic dropped 80 percent you know it was it it was really noticeable the streets were were quiet the m25 was almost almost empty and then throughout the year it gradually built up built up there was then a a phase when people were told to go back to work if they could and traffic increased and then it changed again with another lockdown people told to stay at home but it's interesting this year mike because the first week if you like, back at work was last week. And on the Monday at the AA, we dealt with 14,000 breakdowns. Wow. On, on a normal day, in normal times without COVID, you'd have about 10,000. Okay. But a lot of those breakdowns, and this, this, this is where people are driving less, but their cars are still breaking down. Mm. So some 30 four percent were actually batteries so cars that have been stuck at home over christmas battery goes flat etc what we found though generally in the traffic this year people are driving shorter distances so the number of trips you do is down and the distance is down but people are still going out now Mm. some of those will be key workers some of them will be going to supermarkets some of them where, where they've got kids still at school, kids are key workers go, going to school. So it, it is down, but not half as markedly as in late March, no. April last year. I mean, the one difference, though, Mike, that our patrols do tell us, actually at night, you know, after 
6.37, it, it is much quieter mm. because there, there is basically nowhere to go at night. You know, there are no pubs, restaurants, etc. So, So in the evening, it is. But... But during the day, yeah, around the towns and cities, there's still a fair amount. Right. Because obviously the narrative that we're hearing from the government is that, you know, um, if you're not really supposed to be going out at all, um, you shouldn't be. So I wonder whether, you know, when they talk about bringing in further sort of measures, if you like, whether they could bring in further measures to stop people driving around quite as much as they do. I'm not really sure they could, to be honest, because I'm also assuming one of the big reasons for traffic jams at the moment is all the people out delivering parcels. Well, well, indeed, the fastest element of traffic growth is kind of white vans. Mm. It is those service vans that are going to everyone's home. And that that is the fastest growth by a long way. But potentially, if they do those deliveries right and they have a number of drop-offs and it's well-planned, potentially that should reduce congestion because it means, you know, 10, 15 people not going to a supermarket because it's it, it's on a route. I think the interesting thing, Mike, longer term is as a society, do we change the way we work and will we have more people working from home permanently? Mm. I mean, it's quite interesting at, at the AA way before COVID for our call centres, we always had 150 to 300 people working at home, actually taking breakdown calls at home. Right. And it was immensely beneficial. If you think back two years to the beast from the east and the snow came down, the ice came down, the roads were treacherous, many people couldn't get to work, but people were breaking down. The fact that we had about 300 people work, working from home anyway who could take those calls was incredibly useful. It, it gave us greater flexibility. In April last year, Mike, it was estimated about 50% of people were working from mm. home. These, these are the Office of National Statistics. Right. But by October, it had dropped to 25%. Mm. So there were those kind of mis, mixed messages, you know, support your city centres, get back to work. But I guess long term, even if... 10 or 15% of people who in the past used to commute work from home. That would still have a vast difference on congestion on the roads in peak period, overcrowding on trains. You know, 10 or 15%, although it doesn't sound that much, can actually make that difference because traffic's on a knife edge and that, that extra element causes congestion. So it will be interesting to see how people do adopt um, to, to the new working. But yeah, certainly at the moment, I, I think your observations are probably right. There's, there, there's probably more people out and about that one would envisage due to the lockdown restrictions. Yes, I mean, a report in from Scotland just now from, from uh, a man Donald up there, M80, M80, he says about 50 to 60% normal. I would say that's probably quite right for most of the country, really. But um, there were times in the summer, and you're right to say that it happened, I think, once people started to go back to work. I remember one day, one Friday, when I was uh, making my way down to Sussex, it took me two hours to get from London Bridge to Lewisham. That's how bad it was, yeah. you know? yeah. Yeah, in, in, indeed. So certainly, you know, life goes on, the, ro the roads are still important. But, but obviously, you know, all, all our supplies to our supermarkets go by road, all our deliveries to the factories that still are open are by road. You know, we've still got inputs coming from the port. So, you know, roads remain important, despite everything else. Um, just slightly questionable whether whether you know some people are perhaps using them more than they should if if they were abiding strictly by by the rules and certainly in terms of breakdowns you know we we have been running at, at about ninety percent of what we would expect now okay some extra because people aren't using their cars but even so those levels of breakdowns are still much higher than perhaps we would expect if, if mm. people, you know, were cutting back on all those journeys. And of course, your business, I know that you were saying earlier, <clears throat> you have a lot of people that can work from home, but you also mm. have a lot of people that can't, you know, you can't, oh, fix some, can't fix somebody's car remotely, you know, you have to be out there within a van with a set of jump leads, don't you? 
Yeah, no, ab ab absolutely. And therefore, you know, we, we've had to introduce safe systems of work, uh, change the way we work. So, for example, in our big recovery vehicles, so when there's a vehicle that we can't fix at the roadside and we have to recover a vehicle, we've put in plastic screens that divide the driver and the front of the truck from the back to mm. give extra protection. Windows are kept open. People wear masks. Um, so yes, we, we have adapted because our, our guys have, have had to be out there. We're also helping people like the London Ambulance Service to get more ambulances on the road and throughout lockdown, we, we've been work, working with them. We're also looking at what signing, we have a signs um, business for temporary signs. So we're looking how we can help some of the vaccination centers to, to put up signs there. So. A lot of, lot of things that, that we've been doing to kind of help the national effort. But yeah, our, our guys are out there to keep the key workers on, on the road and to keep them driving, particularly as you indicated that many of them haven't been using public transport, you know, because of the mm. extra health concerns. Well, exactly right. Good to talk to you, Edwin. Thank you very much indeed. Edwin King, president of the AA there uh, on the levels of traffic, because they are quite big out there. And I'd like to hear from all of you out there. You might be driving around listening to us right now. Uh, and if you are, uh, by all means, let us know. I think there's see, I'm not complaining that there's people out on the road. I'm just saying it seems to me that there's still quite a lot of people out there. Um, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. How about this from Catherine in Cardiff? She's texted in to 87222. Well done, Mike. She says, keep going. please keep going on about a plan. I've been ranting on the subject for ages. We cannot live in Never Never Land forever. The money tree will eventually have been pruned out of existence. Well, I think that's true. And the fact is uh, that I'm going to spend an awful lot of time on this radio station this week talking about trying to get ourselves a plan, trying to put pressure on our uh, political leaders to come up with a plan uh, and not to just simply be reacting all the time to events because surely it's now now knowledgeable time uh, when you look at the number of vaccinations that can be done uh, they're already talking about vaccinating the top four tiers of the most vulnerable people by mid-February well surely that must release other people to be able to go about their business mustn't it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Time to say a very, very good morning to Mr. Neil Oliver. Neil, very good morning to you. How are you? Hello, Mike. Good morning to you too. I am okay. Thank good. you. Good. I was saying earlier on this uh, this morning that I woke up uh, with a slight sense of foreboding, which I'm sure uh, you will feel all too familiar with because we all do it from time to time. I'm all right now. Um, but you know when you just wake up and you just go, you know, you issue a, 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 an oath of some kind, which I can't say on the radio, and it just everything just looks terrible. You look out the window, it's kind of misty, gloomy, dark, um, you know, wet and cold and you just think 
can I really be bothered? And I think we all face this sometimes where we need to sort of support each other in the sense that, you know, the more we talk about it, the better we feel. Oh, yes. Um, I am. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely one of those who struggle in the morning. I, I think I do generally. I think that's my I think that's my bad time immediately after I waking up anyway. Yeah. Uh, pandemic or no pandemic. Um, and it, but but I do know it's like I can stand objectively outside of myself while I'm lying there in the dark with tears in my eyes. <laughs> and I know that if I just get up, put the kettle on and do the do the, the normal things of the normal day, then that that sense of dread and doom dissipates. Yeah. Uh, just by going about the normal business of life. Yes. I mean, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, whenever people have been in, in, in times, bad times of their lives, you know, there is a great kind of um, uh, susceptibility to, to lying in bed and feeling sorry for yourself. And the more you lie there, the more sorry you feel and the less likely you feel about getting up. And I was talking about this yesterday with regard to our sort of teenagers. And I know you've got children of your own. Um, and I feel desperately sorry for them at the moment because, you know, we're hearing more and more stories of uh, people saying that their kids have become slightly insular. You know, it's hard to get them to get involved in anything. Or it's hard to get them to get enthusiastic about anything. How are you? How are you finding that? Well, ours are uh, my eldest. My daughter is 17 and my, my boys are uh, 15 and 12. Mm. And it's definitely the strain is showing. I mean, they're, mm. they're all, you know, they're OK. Uh, but the, the, the sense of isolation uh, that kind of thousand-yard stare that, you, that I think people are mentioning, mm. you know, we you catch them looking off into space as if they're, you, you know, they don't really, you know, have a sense of what ought to be coming next. Yeah. Um, and our, our kids are now doing this online uh, schooling. And, you know, fair play to the, to the school, uh, you know, they are, the, the teachers are talking to the kids via a screen. Uh, but, but the reality is that it means that we've now got three kids who are sitting in front of a screen uh, from nine till four. Yeah. Uh, every day, which, you know, under normal circumstances, I don't think anybody would be saying that a kid sitting in front of a screen for seven or eight hours was was any kind of, uh, uh, you know, way to develop a young mind. No. Uh, It's the the endlessness of it. I think uh, people are are, are adapted to cope with something if there's there's an end in sight. You know, when when it first began and we thought it was going to be weeks, you think, well, okay, uh, and we'll get through it and then it'll be different. But as, uh, the longer it goes on, you begin to develop a suspicion that this might be that there might be a version of this into an indefinite future, mm. and that just doesn't seem practical. It's definitely taken a toll on on, on our kids. They're mm. asking questions. Uh, you know, they, they they definitely show signs of needing more and more reassurance. They want m- my wife and I, you know, visible more than they used to. Uh, so that there are all kinds of uh, you know symptoms and signs that you can see of of kids that are just rattled. Mm. And we get feedback from the, from their friends that they are talking to you know, online and whatever, uh, and that that malaise is general. I mean, you mentioned the fact that we've got a pup, you know, and and we've got two dogs. We've got the we've got the pup as company for the for the older dog, uh, and and we, we look at each other at the moment, first few days, and we're wondering why on earth we we did it to ourselves. <laughs> now this morning at seven o'clock, I find myself standing out in the dark in the garden once again, uh, waiting for a pup to um, reverse park its breakfast. Yeah, um, which which was a little bit uh, hard. <laughs> Uh, and I, I thought, why on earth have I done this to myself? But the answer to that question is, we were, you, you know, we wanted the pup anyway. But I'm very well aware of the fact that it's a, it's an optimistic, positive presence to have in the house. Mm. She's the very embodiment of a young life. Mm. That if you're feeling like staying in your bed and you want to pull the duvet over your head when you've got a, an 11 week old pup, that is not an option. And no. that alone gives you something to get up for. And the dogs have got to be exercised and, and all the rest of it. And one of the things that I'm I'm terribly aware of at the moment is the need for some kind of uh, offer of a morale boost mm. and, and optimism. I don't think we're going to get it from the powers that be, but because all it seems to be coming down from the powers that be at the moment is doom mm. uh, and and blame. You know, in, in cre- any time anything goes wrong, it, it turns out that we, the British people, haven't been good enough. Yeah, it, it, the buck seems to stop with us. Uh, and there's a there does seem to be a, a level to which we're just being demoralised and morale is being is being driven downwards, and we definitely need to find some other sources within our communities, however those communities are are structured at the moment in the circumstances. But we have to find reasons for morale. You know, there's always been analogies about this as being in a, a kind of a war footing. 
but but at the moment uh, there's no there's no sense of being you getting rousing speeches you know being uh, you know encouraged to dig for victory you know uh, people can't go out and do the things that they did you know during the second world war which was meet and they still went to the pubs and they gathered together and they sang in the air raid shelters and you know in the in the tube stations and the london underground and all the rest of it but there's none of that at the moment no. everything is about is about negativity and a loss of hope and that is it's imperative that we find ways within ourselves as individuals and and families to you have to boost morale mm. we have to get morale back up otherwise there won't be a, there won't be a civilization and a society worth saving at the end of all this no of course and i think the difference as well between what you've just described of of, of a morale boosting sort of situation and people in air raid shelters is that they had a common enemy they sort of had a common goal as well which was to beat that common enemy whereas the way that the government is approaching this seems to be to sort of make us fight a amongst ourselves because that's certainly what they've created they've created this horrible ghastly kind of you know um sewer if you like of social media where people just abuse each other constantly all day and all night because they disagree with whatever it is that they think um that the other person believes in and the, and the insistence all the time that it's all about compliance I and mean, i really don't like that word i find that has terrible authoritarian overtones yes. the general air of of, of required uh, obedience it makes us feel uh, defeated it, it gives people a set and, and on top of that they're saying your only hope is to wait in your houses until we can get you the vaccine i.e you are powerless there's nothing there's nothing positive that you the population can do except comply and wait for the for the vaccine and that's a i, I think that's a a, a doom laden message mm. Uh, and people, and especially because the tiers keep getting higher, four or five, I've heard rumours about tier six. Right. And if, if you keep changing the laws on people, as soon as you move the line, people are automatically made criminal. People find themselves on the wrong, on the wrong side of a line that has moved. And the talk about that's coming down from, from the authorities about needing c complete compliance, when has there ever been complete compliance to anything? Mm. You, you know, people do drive without wearing their seatbelts. You know, people do break the speed limits in the town and on the motorways. Right. You know, you know, there are various ways in which you don't get 100% compliance to a law, and certainly not just because it suits a, a government or an authority to insist upon it. And, and always falling back from seeing that there isn't 100% compliance and that the, the lack of total compliance is always the ultimate cause of, of, of everything that's going wrong. It's, it ends up being our fault for not complying enough. It's so demoralizing for that vast majority of the population who are doing their best, you know, who are staying in their homes, you know, who are avoiding social contact, who are social distancing and wearing face coverings and all the rest of it. And the only feedback they get from the authorities is that once again, class, you've failed. And we're just going to have another exam. You know, we're just going to have another pop test now. And that doesn't seem to me to be a, a, any kind of encouraging way to go about it. No. You know, you take the people with you. Mm. If, we're, if we're on some kind of a war footing, you know, where's the finest hour speech? You know, where's the where's the fight them on the beaches? Yeah. Ret but that's the trouble, isn't it? Because whenever, I mean, certainly whenever Boris Johnson tries to do that, he kind of gets the tone of it wrong. And he does this rather sort of rah, rah, um, you know, we're all Victorians now or something. And I'm not quite sure why he hearkens back to that kind of form of speech. And he doesn't quite uh, have the rabble rousing skills uh, that we all thought that he did have. But I mean, Adam Wagner, right, who's a, 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 a lawyer on uh, uh, on uh, for one of the big chambers here in London, he put out a tweet yesterday saying that basically the lock lockdown rules have been changed 65 times since the beginning of uh -huh. this lockdown and it's no wonder people are confused because I mean you and I I'm certainly in my case I mean I'm supposedly up to date with whatever is going on but I couldn't tell you what the rules are in a lot of situations and neither could Priti Patel yesterday. No and it, a lot of it as well I'll, I, I keep coming back to the idea that where if we were at war with an enemy that we could, you know, get together and and, and fight in a positive way, not not in a compliant um, and 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 obedient, silenced way, it, it would be different. But but the position that most people have been put in is like a kind of state mandated depression. I mean, I, I haven't suffered depression myself, but mm. but I, I'm aware of those that have, and and that I, you know, people who are depressed, they want to just stay at home. Maybe stay in their beds. Don't get dressed. Right. Stay in the pajamas. Don't meet anyone. Don't talk to anyone. Pull the duvet over your head. Just watch television. 
and, and that is that is effectively what we're being told to do as a population. Yeah. So it's a depressing that is a depressing prospect. And when it was short term, it was one thing. But I get, I think you'd have to be recklessly optimistic to think that the rest of this year is going to see much of a change in what's coming down, what's being mandated from above. Right. I don't see an end in sight to the to the lockdown and, and the necessity every time there's a rise in in in, uh, in cases of being put back into this situation, and the the endlessness of it is just going to drive people into the into the abyss, and, mm. and it is bringing the worst out in people. You know, I mean, you know, uh, Nietzsche said, you know, if you if you look into the abyss for long enough, it looks back into you. Yeah. And seeing it manifest itself in the way that pe- people are are treating one another and how punitive and, and critical they're being of of one another's behaviour. And we need we need to we're going to have to change direction in some way. There has to it has to be about more than just being indefinitely locked down yeah. and waiting for people we can't see to somehow magically fix the problem for yes. us. And also, there is this sort of you know creeping, as you say, compliance. I mean, people are compliant by and large. We are given a set of guidelines. We are given a set of rules. You know, I comply with those because we have to in order to come into this building. I put a mask on. You know, that's because the building uh, is um, COVID secure. They asked me to do it. Otherwise, I wouldn't come into the building. Now, if I wanted to somehow revolt against that and say I'm not coming into the building, that's fine. That's my choice. But that's not my choice. That's not what I do. I used to uh, when I used to go to school in West London. I used to see um, a piece of graffiti on Westway, which fascinated me as a, as a kid. It said, consume, be silent, die. Right. And I just thought that's exactly what we shouldn't be doing, because now they're saying not only must you comply, but you've got to like it. And Julia was talking about this this morning. You know, I don't have to like it. I don't like wearing a mask. I wear one. I don't like complying uh, with the rules, but I do. And the point is, is that why should I like doing it? Why should I be in some way accused of, of being in the wrong? Because I don't like it. Yeah, I think people people do talk all the time about the you know the the, the, the drift into authoritarian tendencies about it all. Yeah, and sometimes I feel you know when you watch we've all watched television series or films where you know someone's gone back in time, back to a time before the Beatles. Yeah. And they then take advantage of the fact that nobody's heard Penny Lane and Sergeant Pepper and you know <laughs> Eleanor Rigby, and they pass them off as, as themselves. It feels it's beginning to feel to me as though we've we've forgotten that the twentieth century ever happened. We're, we're, we're unlearning mm. the, the songs. We're, we're forgetting the lessons that we were supposed to have learned in the twentieth century, and and it's all around the world at the moment. You, you know, when do we have? Why do we have to learn again that? that shouting down opposition and silencing opposition is a bad thing to do and ends up in a, at a bad destination. You know, why, why do we have to relearn that when it's there in Primo Levi, in Solzhenitsyn? We, we, we know it. We, we know the consequences of, of, uh, of allowing dissenting views to be silenced, uh, of people being shamed into not opening their mouths, uh, you know, of being encouraged to report on on friends and neighbours, we have done that as a civilization. We saw it almost only just out of living memory, and I, I, I feel sometimes as if I'm the only person that remembers the songs of the 20th century. You think, why, why are we having to why are we having to say this again? That these are not good tactics, mm. and they don't take civilizations and societies to useful destinations. Someone has to start being optimistic, optimistic in a positive and realistic way, mm. you know, seeing an end in sight, genuinely saying that the end of the tunnel is in sight, not just dangling it in front of people like a carrot that is yeah. then taken away every time some or other set of numbers changes or goes in the wrong direction. There has to be an end to it because, the, you know, the, the collateral damage, there's another word that's used all the time, is mounting up people's mental health is now visibly affected. Yeah. And it's just not the case that the population who are being so, they're trying so hard to do everything that's being asked of them, and it always just ends up getting worse or going on for longer. Mm. And inevitably, that is going to demoralise too many of the people. 
And even if COVID's never going to be beaten, it's going to be with us forever. It's a new, it's a new occupant inhabitant of planet Earth. And we're going to have to find ways to accept that it's there without taking the measures that we've been taking, which if we don't uh, unloose the shackles eventually and soon, then the collateral damage is going to have is going to have been too much to justify what's been done. I mean, you know, ends don't always justify the means. They just don't. No. And I was saying this earlier in the week as well. You know, we've got now a thousand deaths and plus every single day at the moment. Now, I'm perfectly willing to understand that there will be at least three to four weeks of that before somehow uh, it calms down a bit. But it doesn't suggest to me that because of what we're doing, that the numbers of deaths are going down. You know, it just doesn't. So in the end, you'll have to take that view at some point or other with the vaccines that we now have uh, and say, right, well, now we can have a new plan because we were told towards the end of last year that once the vaccines start arriving on the scene, we'll be able to be in a much better place. Well, hello, they're here and we're not. Yeah, I mean, surely once a majority or, or I don't know what the number would be, but surely once enough people have received whatever dose is mandated of the vaccine, then that would that would have to be uh, the reason to unlock the doors and open the windows mm. and let everyone out and get back to normal. Otherwise, what is the point? Uh, if we just have a program where everyone gets vaccinated, but but we still have to stay in lockdown right. and mostly stay yeah. with each other, what is the what is the point of the of the vaccination program at all? Yeah. It's either a solution or it's not. And you have to at least we have to see how it goes. Otherwise, all of that effort by Pfizer and, and the rest of them, what's it been for? Right. If it doesn't, if it doesn't provide the solution, I don't know, you'd have to get to the point where you go, right, whatever, three quarters or 50% or whatever it is of the population have now had it. The most vulnerable, the elderly, people with underlying health conditions, they've all had it. Right, let's reset the clocks, start again and see what happens. And at that point, we already know that lockdowns won't have worked. There's no correlation anywhere in the world between what between lockdown and other measures that have been taken and a successful outcome. Yeah. It's going to take generations of number crunching, you know, to work out how and why this virus has had the effect that it's had. But the most draconian lockdowns in places like Peru and other have not, you know, have not secured populations, nor in nor in Belgium and other places where there have been, you know, lesser restrictions. There is no, there had, no one has yet demonstrated that the way they've gone about it has been the magic bullet. No. I suppose I you might argue I suppose you might argue that New Zealand have, but I mean they they pretty much stopped anyone from entering their country for a very long period of time. New Zealand is in a unique situation. You know, it's, New Zealand's a long way from everywhere. Yeah. New Zealand's a long way from Australia. I mean, that's at the end of the tunnel, isn't it, New Zealand? I mean, you only go to New Zealand to get to New Zealand. You don't go through it for any reason. They, you know, it's a very small population in a very big place. It's as big as the UK with four and a half million people. Yeah. And, you know, and, and very quickly, you know, they took measures to, to control the, the, the comings and goings from their islands. But you can't, you know. Again, just in the in the scheme of 190 odd countries around the world, they've got that's one that, that was one solution. But it, it doesn't, it hasn't correlated. I mean, you know, other people have closed borders, and, and it hasn't necessarily. What for? Anyway, I don't want to get. I, I find it so frustrating. We, we keep on going back around and around the mm. houses. We can't keep repeating the same experiment, expecting no. different results. We have to do something else. We have to we have to put the clocks back to zero, and then see what happens. And, and and we and we will have learned at least that these that these ever stricter lockdowns they, they just aren't working. Mm. They're not stopping the virus, and maybe the virus is just with us. Yes, and maybe you can't stop it. And I think that's probably a good point on which to end. Neil, thank you very much indeed. Keep up the good work and keep up the positivity because that's what we can all do uh, in order to make ourselves and everybody else around us feel an awful lot better about what is going on. But I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning of the show. We need a plan. The government needs to come up with a plan. Uh, they've got the scientific advisors. They've got the vaccine. Uh, they know more about the COVID virus now than they've ever known. Why can we not see what it is that is the way out of this particular situation? I think it's time, and I'm sure that you would agree with that as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, we started our homeschooling section way back in March of last year uh, when we realised that an awful lot of parents were going to be struggling to teach their children uh, because most parents are not teachers, of course. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, once more, something very interesting, capital cities. And we're going to be talking to Steve Brace, Head of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society. Steve, very good afternoon to you. 
Hi, Mike. Nice to meet with you again. Yes. Full circle round again. Well, we have indeed. Yes. I mean, we were actually kind of slightly um, phasing it out uh, towards the end of last year, the homeschooling, because we thought, you know, it may be difficult to do it every day. But of course, now we're back to, as you say, square one. And a lot of people seeing their kids... I think getting better education uh, online than they were getting back in sort of April and May because it, people are a bit more used to it. But still, um, fascinating to talk about capital cities. I've got a few notes here in front of me. Um, and what I didn't know, uh, obviously, I knew that there were some newly created capital cities. You know, people who are as old as me uh, forget that things sometimes change their names. But also, there are countries with more than one capital city. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not common, but there are some countries in the world. South Africa is one of one of the examples where we have three capital cities, Pretoria, Cape Town and Bluefontein. And mm. part is of the settlement of post-apartheid, that those three cities representing different parts of the countries okay. and also bits of the government all become part of the uh, sort of shared capital. Right. Interesting that Johannesburg is not one of them. They didn't make it four. Yeah, and I think sometimes we also find that in many countries, actually, the, the biggest city is often not the capital. You know, people often mistake Sydney for the, being the capital of yes. Australia. It's Canberra and right. similarly Wellington being the capital of, uh, of New Zealand. Uh, sorry, Auckland. Sorry, Wellington rather than Auckland. Right. And sometimes, you know, as we saw last week, you know, Washington, D.C. is the capital of America, but people often mistake it to, for being New York. Yes, absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit about some of the newer capital cities like Abuja, because they've just been sort of renamed, haven't they? And I guess that's happened in, in India as well. Yeah, there's, there's a variety of, of countries that have sort of either built entirely new capital cities. So Abuja was a new city built in the late 1970s, 1980s, and and Nigeria moved its capital from Lagos on the coast into the centre of the country to mm. sort of rebalance the nation in many respects. Similarly, Brasilia is the, this amazing modernist concrete uh, capital city in the, in the, the, you know, the interior of Brazil, uh, rather than Sao Paulo, where it was previously. Mm. But probably one of the most newest ones is uh, South Sudan's capital, which is Juba. South Sudan became an independent nation in 2011. Juba became. God, was the, it that long ago? God, I thought it was more recent. Yeah, than that. I mean, just feel not not too long ago, but it's a little while now. Juba was named the capital, but there are actually moves to move it, a, a move the capital of South Sudan about 50, 60 miles away to a loca location called Ramsil, mm. and that happened yet. But we might yet get an even newer capital city in in uh, South Sudan if those plans progress. Right, and does a capital city have to be the seat of government, or not necessarily? I think. I think the convention is that the capital holds the, the the sort of seat of administrative power. I mean, clearly there are you know varieties and differences that we've heard about South Africa and you know across the the UK we have London as the UK capital city, but of course we have the devolved capital cities in Wales, Scotland, Northern mm. Ireland, Edinburgh, Cardiff, and, and Belfast. So, you know, there's varieties within countries. Um, and in America, they talk of the state capitals being the, the capital city of the, the state. The yes. And they all, they all, of course, have their own individual local governments and they even have their own capital buildings. In all. I always found that fascinating. Absolutely, whenever you, yes. Whenever you go yeah. to, like, for example, I think it's Hartford in Connecticut and they've got an absolute almost a replica of the capital building from Washington, D.C., only just slightly smaller. I imagine it's a little smaller scale. But, yeah, and, you know, even in very, very small nations... Um, so I think you know, some of the smallest capitals in the world, we might want to think about places like Nauru, which is sort of South Pacific Islands. Yaren's their capital city, but there's probably less than a thousand people live there. Mm. It's that centre of the sort of political entity of, of Nauru as a nation. Right. And as far as the, the, the different kind of regions of, um, of countries of the world... Um, you know, we've seen a lot of, I suppose, what you might, for want of a better word, devolution around the world, haven't we? We've seen many more countries yeah. becoming sort of independent. And is some of is some of their kind of um, raison d'etre, I suppose, for moving capitals or changing names just because they want to kind of start afresh? I think sometimes there's a change in name. So, you know, with uh, in India, there's been change in names of a number of cities. Sometimes it's to sort of change the both the political and economic geography of a country and you know we mentioned that around abuja being set up in the interior of um, of nigeria rather than lagos on the coast and right. i think how it's felt to be more representative of the, the broader ethnic mix of nigeria rather than the lagos being associated with one particular area right. uh, and there's you know there's lots of sort of imaginary plans for new capital cities out there in the internet as well but um yeah as, i think as long as they sort of hold the seat of power um, that's that's typical sort of capital city business for us geographers. I mm. mean, 
you have you know complexities like Yemen at the moment is a country torn by conflict its official capitals Sana uh, but that's currently controlled by the Houthi rebels and the sort of internationally recognized capitals moved down to Aden on the coast yes the president in exile in Saudi Arabia so very complicated system but just trying to accommodate the, the different seats of power within a, a, a country in, in lots of conflict. Yeah, and talking of the Middle East, I mean, you've got some places like the UAE. Um, I'm not even sure if there is a capital of the UAE, is there? Because it's got a lot of yeah, different Dubai. I, I think is Dubai the capital city? city? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's sort of all these sort of varieties um, and, you know, it can be quite sort of complicated keeping up with them. Um, Sorry, I've actually made a mistake. I, I knew I'd get a memory wrong. Dubai's big, but it's Abu Dhabi's so that's the. Uh, this is what I'm saying. It's quite it's quite hard to work say, it out because my I'm understanding. Out, yeah. No, no, my understanding is that the different emirates are you know kind of almost yeah. a, a law unto themselves. So if you were say the ruling um, leader of Dubai, you might not be uh, uh, necessarily under the auspices of Abu Dhabi because in a way they're two separate emirates, aren't they? I think, yeah, and no, I've made the, the sort of classic mistake of thinking one big city... Don't the, be the too capital. hard on yourself, Steve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a geographer. I've got to try... I've not memorised everything. I've got to try these ones right. All right, I'll, let you, I'll let you give you a chance for, for, for redeeming yourself. What about the biggest capital city and the smallest capital city? I think it's sort of... The biggest one, it sort of depends how you start counting in terms of the exact boundaries of cities, you know, the wider metropolitan area and some yeah. of these particularly in Southeast Asia, some of these cities are massive, depending mm. on where you it. I think one convention says that Beijing's the largest capital city with a population of over 20 million people. And then we're looking at places like New Delhi, Tokyo, Kinshasa yeah. in, in uh, Democratic Republic of Africa, yeah. and the next few down. Right. Um, but, you know, you can imagine, like, as we might measure London population, do you take an exact boundary borough within the M25 or, or however? And there's different conventions in different countries. For well, I've, I've always said that about Los Angeles, you know, because Los Angeles only counts itself as a city in the Los Angeles kind of county. But if you actually drive a car from, say, LAX and you drive it all the way down Santa Monica Boulevard and you get to Hollywood and you get to West Hollywood and you get to Mont Santa Monica, I mean, it's all it's all really one big conurbation. If they counted that, I'm assuming it would be one of the biggest cities in the world. I think, I think you're absolutely right. And places like Tokyo, I think depending on which boundary you choose, you could have a sort of a city of well over 20 million people or a capital city of about 14. And you know, right. these sort of merge and grow as they get bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I mean, Germany's an interesting one, isn't it? Because Germany had to change from West Germany and East Germany to find a common capital, which I'm assuming is now Berlin. As opposed yeah, to it's, re it's returned to Berlin. Right. And uh, as, as anybody's visited Berlin, I did a few years ago, you know, you have this sort of, even with the fall of the wall, the, the physical job of the city is so sort of structured by that period of time in terms of, you know, what happened around in, in the East and what happened in the West and the types of housing. And, you you know, I remember being at the top of the, the Alexander Platz TV tower looking eastwards and it's just housing development upon housing development that used to be part of the, the sort of east berlin yes of the city I mean, and i suppose and i suppose all of the former sort of soviet republics which have got their independence will have new capitals perhaps some of them maybe have old capitals like ukraine um but somewhere like maybe georgia wouldn't have had um uh, or belarus i don't know if they would have had capitals when they were underneath that kind of russian jackboot as it were yeah, I imagine they would have had, um, you know, the, the sort of principal city within within the Republic. And, you know, the, the sort of Soviet Union was that sort of constellation of, of a number of different nations within, whether it's, you know, Kazakhstan, you know, Belarus, Ukraine, and so on. Mm. Um, but those cities, be it Kiev in, in Ukraine, have become capital cities of the, the newly independent nations in their own right. Sure. Do you have a favourite capital, Steve? Well, do you know what? I, I would actually... It's, I would say it's probably Brasilia, um, if only because I can still remember as a 13-year-old opening my geography textbook, there was a double-page spread of this modernist, concrete, new capital city built in the, you know, in, in the middle of Brazil with an amazing cathedral and all the, the parliament buildings. Mm. And it's a bit like, as some people describe, this is probably the geographer in me, some people describe seeing tropical fish on a reef for the first time. It's one of those images you yes. just always... And seeing that in, in a in a full colour textbook, I'm showing my age, you know, in the in the, the early 1980s. And I did have the opportunity to visit Brasilia a few years ago, and it is still like those pictures. Mm. It's a very distinct 
place. Um, and I'd say for if for the architecture in the sense of its place alone, I'd say Brasilia. I mean, London is an amazing place to live in, of course, and I live in London. But in terms of another capital city, I'd say probably Brasilia, just because it's such a distinctive, yes. unique place in its own right. Wonderful. Steve, great to talk to you. Thank you, thank you very much indeed. Steve Brace, Head of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society. I hope you might have learned something there about capital cities, uh, because, of course, um, they are. Uh, always changing they are always moving new ones being created uh, old ones being sort of mothballed it's a fascinating world out there uh, you should try and visit as many of them as you possibly can but of course you can't at the moment you can't go anywhere never mind uh, you can listen to this radio station and you can hear about all the great things that you could do uh, and you can do uh, once we're able to do them again talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.